0: Hey team, welcome back to the podcast and hey Mads, how are you doing? Hey Charlie, I'm very well, thank you. How are you doing? I'm good. I've had a really productive day so I'm feeling accomplished. Ah,
1: strong women. Love it.
0: Yeah, it's it's always such a good feeling when you nail a day, when you set out with an intention and then nail it. Yeah, my Sunday was spent grant writing. Um, I feel like I kind of nailed it but also... I felt like my soul was partially sucked out. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, uh, I'm sure a lot of people who are listening to this podcast have had that experience of grant writing, and it literally is sometimes soul-destroying. So I am completely with you, Mads. Yeah, I can imagine today was a pretty intense day. But we are going to be talking about something that we both love, coral reefs. Very much. That is the topic of today's episode, and we got to speak to a really Really wonderful guest. But before we go down that road, Mads, when was the last time you dived on a coral reef? Because I know you're mad about them.
1: <laughs> mad,
0: <laughs> mad, Mads mad.
1: Mad's mad about coral reefs. Um gosh, the last time that I dived on a coral reef, gosh, it would have been pre-COVID. Um mm. it would have been actually it would have been 2020, January. Um, I think just after New Year
0: in Ningaloo in, in Australia. <sighs> oh, I very never made it to Ningaloo, but I have, yeah, that's yet, up there. Yet. It's an absolutely stunning reef. It's a subtropical reef and um, it's got really,
1: really high coral cover. Mm. Um, very interesting, actually, in the context of today's podcast as well, because we'll be talking about uh, places in the world that, that are perhaps a little bit more resilient to climate change. This is coral reefs we're talking about. So Ningaloo is a really interesting place because it's a subtropical reef. The water's a lot cooler there. And Mm. consequently, the the reef is in absolutely banging condition.
0: (laughs) I love that. I've never (laughs) heard a coral reef referred to as banging, but you've done it and it's now going to (laughs) stick. It's now on
1: record. Um, What about you, Charlie? When was the last time that you were out in the tropics? Well, on a coral reef
0: too long ago it was uh, august 2019 and it was my last day of field work after completing a glorious year working as a research assistant at caust and we dived a reef called shark reef which sadly has been <laughs> fished out so there aren't any sharks but used to be a great place mm. for seeing them but um we were putting some hydrophones down and it was just amazing and i hung about at five meters just watching all the sea goldies and sort of reef fish swaying in the in the in the swell and it was just magical and you know I miss that sound of like the crackle crackle. and the clicking (laughs) of the coral reefs.
1: Snap crackle pop it's in England we have this cereal called Rice Krispies and it's (laughs) like
0: it goes snap crackle pop yeah that's how I describe a coral reef because it is. That is really how it sounds but hopefully covid and things are, are improving and hopefully we'll both be back on a coral reef. But, mm. you know, the Red Sea
1: actually is another interesting place to talk about in the context of today's podcast. And we definitely yeah. should do a follow up podcast on this as well, because the Red Sea is another very unique place where... Mm. Because of the topography and this mm. narrow sea that they have, they've had these elevated levels of, of temperature, which means that a lot of the Red Sea corals are actually, their thermal tolerance is much higher than the rest of the world.
0: Yeah, so we're kind of uh, getting a a bit of a, well, basically testing to see what corals do under such extreme temperatures and you're right and I think it could get up to like 40 degrees I definitely dived there in in water that was at 36 and it was like being in a bath it was horrendous yeah I remember that from um, that was an El Nino year
1: when I was out in Cuba gosh this was a while ago and I remember jumping from the air into the sea and the sea being warmer than the air and (laughs) it was like a bath it you got in and it was warm and it was really disconcerting
0: yeah it's not the one when it's like 40 degrees out of the water and then you get in the water to cool off and then you don't cool off at all (laughs) and you're basically just swimming around in your own sweat and you're like
1: what am I gonna do with my life (laughs) yeah oh gosh and I mean in the Caribbean as well when I mean, the state of the reef in Cuba wasn't fantastic mm. um, already, and the few remaining coral corals that were there, I uh, didn't feel like the bath temperature water was
0: perhaps <laughs> the best, the best no. thing for it. No, <laughs> but this podcast is kind of a silver lining. It's 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 telling a new narrative, or not a new narrative, but yeah, kind of a new narrative actually, and a different story, mm. because I think quite often we think that the ocean is impacted all the same, but as we'll find out, not all areas of the ocean are impacted the same.
1: And not all corals will be affected the same by climate change. So should we dive
0: right in? Let's do this. Welcome to the Women in Ocean Science podcast, hosted by me, Charlie Young, and me, Mad Sinclair. We're two marine biologists on a quest to elevate the voices of our fellow female scientists.
1: Each week, we'll be diving into a new and exciting piece of research authored by a leading woman in marine science.
0: From fisheries biologists to chemical oceanographers to PhD students and researching mamas.
1: We'll be hearing from the pioneering female researchers of today to put a new spin on scientific publications.
0: And smash down some gender stereotypes in the process. So tune in every Monday for a podcast that champions the research of lady scientists and shines a positive light on the work being done to protect the ocean. Will there be a safe haven for corals in a changing sea? Today on the podcast, we are joined by Amber, a second year PhD student at the University of Edinburgh. Amber's research investigates how marine protected areas can be used as a tool to address the impacts of climate change on coral reefs and coastal communities. Amber's research is truly interdisciplinary, combining marine ecology, climate science, and
1: social research. Though she currently has two more lead author papers in the works, today we'll be discussing Amber's first lead author paper, which was published back in 2020, about the potential for corals located on remote islands in the eastern tropical Pacific to be likely to survive climate change. Amber, welcome to the podcast.
2: We are stoked to have you on today. How are you doing? I'm well, thank you. Thank you very much for having me on. Thank you for coming on. We're so excited. Sorry, spoke over you, Mads.
1: No, we are. We are so excited. Um, Charlie and I absolutely love a coral reef podcast. So again, we get very, very excited about these ones. Um, So yeah, where are you in the world at the moment? What
2: are you doing? Um, I'm currently in Oxford, uh, but I've been living in the southwest for the last few months um, in Devon, and I'm going to go down to Cornwall soon. Um, And I'm just at the moment working on my PhD, which is at the University of Edinburgh, so the other end of the country. Um, Yeah, my PhD is looking at the impact of climate change on marine ecosystems and coastal communities that rely on these ecosystems for their livelihoods. Um, So mostly focused in the tropics, and I'm really interested in how marine conservation can be used as a tool to kind of address, adapt and mitigate the impacts of climate change on the livelihoods of um those communities wow absolutely (laughs) amazing stuff Um, and
1: the paper that we're here to talk about today is one that you did just before your phd um, and that is in this in this uh category category in this research interest of uh climate change and how marine ecosystems can potentially um well adapt i guess um, yeah. and that is assessing opportunities to support coral reef climate change in refugia in mpas a case study at the revia revia <laughs> i'm gonna have to cut that out <laughs> go. revia hijedo archipelago which from now on in the podcast i am going to refer to as revia 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 because (laughs) I don't want to offend anyone. So uh, yes, how about you start off by giving us a kind of abstract like summary of uh, your paper?
2: Um, Okay. Uh, Yeah, so Ravia is a group of um, volcanic islands off the coast of Baja California in Mexico. And the paper looks at the uh, cor- coral community that um, exists as these islands and investigates and assesses how this coral community could be an area which is an or a, yeah an area which is more likely to survive um, climate change in the future. Mm.
0: That's so so interesting, and I I'm really finding it hard to believe that a refuge exists in our oceans. Um, you know like you go into your paper, you kind of, you know, discuss the things that are threatening coral reefs. It kind of blows my mind that there is actually something or places out there that could be a refuge. So what makes a
1: good refugia for corals? And I guess the question on the other side of that is what conditions make it difficult for a coral to, to not be able to survive in the first place?
2: Um, okay, sure. Well, I guess uh, the conditions that make uh, it difficult for a coral to survive at the mo uh, in the first place. Um, would be kind of environmental stresses and human stresses. So, uh, you know, predominantly we talk about ocean warming causing coral bleaching, um, but also increasingly in the future. Well, in the future now, ocean acidification, <laughs> the oxygenation, and then on the other side of that, there's human stresses. So, you know, overfishing, coastal development, pollution. Um, disturbance, all that sort of thing. Um, so, a refugia is a location where um, kind of the physical, biological, and ecological characteristics of the coral community will make it more resilient to climate change. Mm. Um, and so, a key part of this is the absence or reduction of conditions that cause stress to the corals. So, um, yeah, as I mentioned, Predominantly, we talk about refugia in the context of ocean warming at the moment. Mm. But I think in the future, we'll see more um, discussion of refugia in the context of acidification and deoxygenation. And then on the other side, on the ecological and biological side, it's the ability of that coral community to acclimatise or adapt to um, the changing conditions caused by climate change so acclimatizing is where the corals kind of adapt their internal processes and um, adaptation is kind of through the natural selection either by the coral itself or by the symbiotic algae the zooxanthellae that live within the coral Um, and so these kind of ecological and biological factors are related to the species of the coral uh, the geographic location, the connectivity with other coral sites. Um, and yeah, and then a final and key factor of refugia is the human pressure. So, um, an area could have all these kind of biological, ecological, physical characteristics that make it a perfect refugia, but, if there is human pressures on on this ecosystem then the likelihood is that that kind of capacity for refugia won't be reached uh,
1: and um if you could just tell us quickly as well for some who, listeners who may not be familiar um with the biological mechanisms um behind this stress for corals what does a stressed coral look like because we've all heard the, heard the term coral bleaching but what does this actually look like for a coral
2: Um, So when a coral uh, becomes stressed, it's bleached. And this is when there is a breakdown of the relationship between the coral polyp, so the kind of coral animal, and the symbiotic algae that live inside it. Um, And so when the coral becomes stressed, it expels the symbiotic algae. And this is significant because that algae um, provides most of the coral's food. So when the coral expels the algae, it turns white. The algae also provides most of its color. Um, and when the coral is white, it is essentially reliant on its own um, energy reserves to survive. And if the corals are white for too long, so if the algae is, um, is, is kind of expelled for the coral for a significant amount of time, then the corals can starve to death. Um, and that is kind of essentially what causes the corals to die after bleaching. Uh, it is possible for the, um, that, to the algae to return to the corals Um, And then they are, it is possible that they can recover.
0: Mm. Mm. So, you know, you've kind of discussed um, the mechanisms of stress um, and the impact that it can have on coral. But, you know, if we're thinking in the global context of our coral reefs, you know, what is Mm -hmm. the future looking like for corals? I mean there are lots of facts being thrown around out there. You know, a lot of people think that coral reefs are going to be gone by the, you know, middle of the century. Is that right? Or, you know, I mean, your paper suggests otherwise, um, but we'll get onto
2: that. But yeah, what does the future look like for our corals? Sure. Um, Yeah, so there is lots of kind of facts and figures thrown around about, like, what corals are going to look like in 2050. And I think... um, The fact of the matter is corals are going to, coral reefs are going to look very different Mm. in 2050, but I don't think they're going to completely going to disappear. I think what's going to happen is that the species that are more resilient to these stresses, the species that are resilient to bleaching, they are going to survive and proliferate potentially, while the species that are more susceptible to bleaching are the ones that are going to potentially die off. So... I think the diversity of corals is going to um, decrease around the world, but I don't think coral reefs are going to completely disappear.
1: Mm. And um, in terms of refugia, now this is something that the idea has been around for a while, um, but there aren't, there there aren't actually that many papers identifying different locations for coral reefs across the world. Um, And, this this location that you've identified in particular is incredibly interesting because anyone listening from the dive community knows um, Revere or Socorro as as lots of us know it to be this incredible place where you can go and see um, loads and loads of different elasmobranch species. You have um, it's an aggregation site for giant manta rays. Um, it's a very important breeding site for several species of shark. Um, you can even see humpback whales there as well, um, and you know it's very famous amongst divers as having these very strong currents as well so um let's come on now to why it could potentially be um, a site of refugia what are the reasons that you have identified that make this a good potential site for um coral refugia
2: um okay sure yeah there's There's kind of a whole range of um, kind of characteristics. I'll I'll go almost from like big scale to small scale. Brilliant, yeah. Um, So kind of at a a regional regional scale, corals um, in the eastern tropical Pacific, they are kind of of interest of studies of uh, coral refugia because they're existing at kind of quite... They're existing in very dynamic and sometimes quite extreme conditions, which traditionally corals are not thought of surviving in those conditions. Corals are, you know, you imagine a coral reef, you imagine kind of crystal clear turquoise waters, stable temperatures. Mm-hmm. But, Just how we like it. The, yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, but the corals in that are located in the eastern tropical Pacific, they are often surviving in turbid waters. They obviously have, they often have um kind of big uh seasonal temperature variability and um they also have big interannual variability so um the el nino southern oscillation which is a climate phenomenon phenomena. <laughs>
1: <laughs> I have that every time with that word and was it phenomena,
2: phenomena, yeah. phenomena <laughs> um which every kind of well Three to seven years causes um, uh, ocean warming in the eastern tropical Pacific. Um, corals have severely uh, been severely impacted by this. As in kind of corals in the Galapagos, whole reefs disappeared because the um, warm temperatures caused by El Nino because it caused the corals to bleach and die, basically. Um, so yeah, at a regional scale. We started by looking at the impact of El Niño on Revier, um, and we found because it is kind of at more, it's quite at quite a northern latitude within the eastern tropical Pacific, the temperature variability and the impact of El Niño and the, the warmer El Niño temperatures at these islands was relatively much um, smaller compared to other. Um, coral regions in the eastern tropical pacific so kind of regionally it was in a in a better position um and this is important for client in the context of climate change because um el nino it, it's 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 not entirely known the impact of climate change on el nino but definitely it's um one of one of the discussions is that El Ninos are going to become stronger. So the kind of anomalous warm temperatures are going to come larger, which um, is kind of causes more, more severe stress to the corals. And they might also occur, occur more frequently, which means that the corals have less chance to recover between each El Nino event.
1: And in terms of in terms of this temperature difference that we were seeing between um, this archipelago and the you know the rest of the same but slightly more southern area, it was sure. it was quite a big difference in your paper. It was two point was it two point four degrees versus six degrees. Yeah, yeah which is which is you know for when you look at these el nino events that happen across the world and you see this instance of temperature uh, this temperature change from the baseline well average baseline to you know these anomalies that we see that come with el nino to see only 2.4 I was really, really shocked. That's a very low number, especially compared to that six degree increase uh, in the rest of the region, which is something you know those kind of temperature anom- anomalies we have seen across the world, um, and obviously that coincides with a lot of coral bleaching. So that's a that's a that's a big jump.
2: Yeah, yeah, sure, and um, yeah, and it means that uh, during periods of, of um, El Niño, the there has been kind of observed, observa- there has been observations of bleaching at the islands, but mm. uh, the bleaching wasn't severe enough to kind of cause the cause the corals to eventually die. So um, the corals that have been bleached, they've been seen to recover, and there's kind of not much evidence that of the the only new events causing kind of high amounts of mortality within the coral community. And what's the coral cover like um, at at this archipelago anyway? Yeah. So, um, it's not, it's, it's not, pretend, again, it's not your typical kind of, uh, coral, uh, coral reef, high percentage cover, um, lots of different, you know, lots of different species. It's, um, there's certain areas within the islands that, that kind of reef, a reef has formed, um, but all, but kind of also throughout, there's lots of kind of, individual coral colonies that are growing off the volcanic rocks. So underneath the islands, when you're diving, the um, bathymetry is kind of very complex. There's lots of kind of lava fingers um, from like the, uh, one of the islands, like the last eruption was in, it was volcanic, uh, what the last eruption was in 1952. So there's coral kind of growing off the lava fingers that formed from that eruption. And in the other islands, it's kind of, yeah, there's lots of rocks jetting out um, from the, from the seafloor up to near the surface, and kind of on top of those rocks, not on the edges of those rocks where the um, corals are growing, but often in single colonies rather than frame, rather than reef frameworks. And then when you go into the more protected bays, that's where you'll see the kind of higher coral cover. Um, yeah, and so it's one of the most diverse coral communities within the Eastern Tropical Pacific, but there's only twenty six species. Do you know that
1: was going to be my next question yeah. how, how many species uh, were are there And 26 yeah 26 is uh, not the most but that's still fairly diverse
2: yeah so so for for the eastern tropical pacific 26 species is pretty high um, but compared to you know area the great barrier reef there is in the in the western pacific where you'll see like hundreds of species of corals on a reef
1: yeah. And in terms of um, kind of the interactions between this very charismatic megafauna that we see at this, um, I keep calling it the archipelago because I'm very afraid to pronounce the word, <laughs> wrong, um, Ravia, um, in terms of the very, yeah, these, this very charismatic Magnetic megafauna that that brings divers and biologists there. Do we know? Um, you know, has there been much study done on the interactions between, you know, the health of the reef or the presence of the reef and this marine life?
2: No, that hasn't, and that is something that I really hope work is done on at some point because I just it's such a fascinating subject. It's looking at the connection between. Um, this amazing pelagic life that, um, is living around the islands and the, um, and the reef ecosystem. So, um, the, the clear links are the cleaning stations because, um, you know, when you're at the islands diving, you see these like huge megafauna, the, the oceanic mantas and the whale sharks, you see them going to the cleaning stations and the reef fish, um, cleaning them. Um, And also the coral ecosystem acting as a shark nursery. So when I wrote the paper, I think I um, just put in that it had been observed um, that there were kind of juvenile sharks uh, living in some of the, you know, living in some of the um, reef areas. Um, I think since since the paper's been published, there has actually been another paper that came out that kind of was like a um, a really in depth uh, analysis and identification of the kind of um, reef species present at the island, the fish and the coral. And they did actually say that, they, you know, it's now published that there's juvenile sharks kind of using that area. Mm. Um, so that, yeah, that's great because it kind of shows this uh, link between the reef ecosystem and the pelagic e- ecosystem.
0: Mm. Wow, gosh, that's so fascinating. Um, and I just wanted to ask as well. So, you know, the topography of these islands is that they're volcanic islands. So I imagine there's not much continental shelf around them. It's pretty much probably some big drop offs, which I imagine means that there's, you know, as Mads was saying, there's quite a lot of currents in this area. Um, you know, how how do currents and tides potentially impact this area as a refuge?
2: Uh sure, yeah, so um when, when you are diving, it's kind of, there's often areas where you won't be able to see the bottom. It's just a, like a really wow. big drop off. Uh, it's, it's kind of like oh, I love it. It's kind of yeah. like diving in the blue. Um, and that, so yeah, so that kind of moves on. I started at the regional scale and, mm-hmm. and the talking about the currents and the processes that kind of goes down to um, a slightly more local scale um, where one of the, kind of main findings and the main reasons that, um, we thought this area could be refugia is because we found these high frequency temp, this high frequency temperature variability. Mm. And this is, um, linked to the very stratified water column. So the, in the Eastern tropical Pacific, there is a very, um, clear line between the warm surface waters and the cooler, um, cooler waters beneath um and um a process like various oceanographic processes they cause something well wow, that's a word <laughs> oceanographic processes <laughs> they the one oh you said
0: reveal. sorry i thought you said something else oh no <laughs> don't worry um <laughs> don't mind me
1: <laughs> the name of this island just getting everyone confused <laughs> again
2: <laughs> um Yeah, so the various oceanographic processes they basically cause this um, the thermocline, uh, which is the the stratification of the water column, uh, to move up and down, Um, and this causes um, and 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 this causes uh, temperature changes of up to you know often between two to three degrees a day, but up to six degrees a day. and whoa, that's yeah.
1: madness. And <laughs> that's gosh. hilarious because I was just saying, gosh, you know, it's funny that it only goes up by 2.4 for an anomaly during El Nino, <laughs> and then when we're seeing daily fluctuations of up to six degrees, that is wow. a very f- highly fluctuating environment for these little corals,
2: yeah. And wow, but, and that that but that link that you just made, Maddie, that's that's kind of perfect. That's what we kind of thought for the paper because if these corals are surviving in daily temperature fluctuations of up to six degrees to de- mm. per day, it probably kind of gives some explanation as to why they are kind of quite fine with the um, temperature changes caused by the El Niño mm. 7 oscillation. Mm. Um, and so, yeah, since the papers come out and and before the paper came out, there was a, there was a couple of other studies, but increasingly there's um, really fascinating studies that show that... Um, corals that exist in areas where there's high frequency temperature variability so when I'm saying high frequency I'm talking like over a daily or t- tidal time scale mm. um, they these corals that are kind of surviving in these conditions are um, are more resilient to bleaching um and there, there was one paper that study that I talk that I'm kind of cite quite a lot in the paper that showed that these high frequency um, temperature variability is actually like the best predictor of bleaching around the world. Um, wow. Yeah. So that was really exciting when we found because we, although it was these kind of the temperature vari- variations, it was known that they were um, happening at these islands because like various mm-hmm. other scientists that were looking at more of the megafauna, they had temperature loggers there. They were, they were, they'd been recording the temperature so that they were aware that they were there. It never been thought about in the context of the coral community and what these temperature variations actually would kind of mean for corals, uh, which you know are often not thought to be able to survive in the in those kind of conditions.
0: It's so interesting, and I mean, you know, we've we've really spoken about all of these different things, these potential factors that could make this area a refuge, but. You know that just that just makes me think. Wow, you had a lot of data to sift through. <laughs> so I want to um, I want to dive into the methods because, of course, you know it's been um, a difficult year. I know that you started this during your masters and you've kind of been working on it. And from reading the paper, you really did collect a suite of data, both in situ and also remote. So if you could talk to us a little bit about how you went about analyzing and sort of, I guess. Answering that question about whether Revilla is in fact a refuge,
2: yeah, sure. So um, it it kind it kind of came about in a, quite a roundabout way. So as you mentioned, it started as my as my master's dissertation, and it um, s- started with uh, me working with an organisation called the Pew Charitable Trusts, and mm-hmm. they were campaigning for uh revia to be made a um, large-scale marine protected area Mm. and i was working with i know i think he might be a friend of women in ocean science max bellow
1: i saw max (laughs) as a co-author on this paper and i was like
2: max (laughs) i love max max is great max is
1: brilliant yeah
2: um yeah so it's amazing to work with him and he kind of we we were in touch and he basically kind of came to me and said um Oh, he came to University of Edinburgh and said he didn't come to me personally at that point. <laughs> <laughs> I have to say, I have to say it all. Yeah, sought <laughs> <saw> you out. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I was. Um, yeah, I was very lucky to get to get involved. But he came to University of Edinburgh and said uh, he he'd been working with them before, Um not much is known about the corals at these islands. Like, do you have a, someone that can just basically do a, a review of what's known? Mm. Um, so so that's really what my master's dissertation was it was just bringing together um, all the information that was known about the coral ecosystem which I quickly learned after agreeing to do the project was not much (laughs) Classic. Um, and so yeah the previous kind of work on it had been done mm, some in the 1990s and I think like very kind of Uh, Oh, I think a paper came out like early 2000s as well but that was really just like taxonomic identification of Mm -hmm. what was present at the islands that's how we know that there's 26 species and we know that there's um lots of endemic species there so species that only exist there wow um but yeah there wasn't much work done and, and the reason for that is because the islands are so remote and as you mentioned like the current the currents are pretty crazy so often that coral corals are growing in areas where like it's kind of impossible to dive like you just you just kind of get ripped up on the reef or, or bashed into the mm. rocks kind of thing um <laughs> <Fun>. yeah <laughs> yeah <laughs> I, I, I definitely learned the hard way um That's you <laughs> so um yeah so that that's kind of what the master taught. So I, I quickly realized there wasn't known, much known about the the actual corals, so I thought, okay well I'll look at the conditions that the corals are existing in. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah and that's where so I use kind of satellite data to look at the regional um, to look at the, to look at the regional oceanographic conditions. I then worked with an organization in Mexico called uh, Pelagio Cacunca. And they oh, help Yeah. I know a few people who have done, you know, a
1: PhD through them.
2: Yeah. I, I know I think I know them too. So. <laughs> and here we are again. World. World. This is a very a small small world. world. Yep. <laughs> this
1: comes up every podcast.
2: <laughs> yeah. Um and so yeah, they very kindly they were the ones that first provided me with like temperature logger data. So temperature data that had been um from data loggers that had been at the islands for a few months um yeah and then so once I kind of had that data really oh I, I also spoke to lots of scientists that had worked at the islands so as I mentioned there wasn't um there wasn't uh much published data but like coming at this from no previous knowledge I needed to kind of I felt I needed to speak to people to get like more context and more insights and yeah. through mm. speaking to people it was it was great because I was able to uh so for example there's scientists that visit the islands every year uh to do research on the sharks but they mm. also you know see if the corals are bleached so by speaking to them I'd kind of be able to I kind of was be able to I was able to paint a picture of yeah. um when the corals had been bleached if there'd be much mortality um you know, that kind of thing. So, yeah, it was a whole it was a whole range of methods. And then for the um, for the kind of eventual paper, we did some like time series analysis that was um, done by some of the uh, a couple of the co-authors mm-hmm. um, and what some more kind of in-depth analysis um, just to kind of look at the mechanisms behind those temperature changes. And um, yeah, all, all things like that.
1: Wow, it sounds like you had a, a very interesting process putting <laughs> this all together, a very mm. diverse range of methods and um it really is a fantastic paper to read as well because you um you do get to read a little bit of a literature review, you've got some <laughs> <laughs> remotely sensed data and of course you do have this new in situ data as well. So it's really it's really great to see it all brought together like this.
0: So um let's
1: let's move on to, you know, some of the discussion and and the wider context now. Um so if this place is a refuge as we as we can see that it might be in this paper um do you know how many other refuges like this exist around the world for coral reefs that have been identified Mm -hmm. at the moment
2: um I definitely can't put a a number on it um Mm -hmm. there is yeah there's more and more literature talking about refugia for corals and because as I kind of talked about there's so many different characteristics that go into refugia for corals these places often kind of have different underlying reasons so you know some of like the early work on I mean early we're not talking that early it's that (laughs) that, like it's like 1800s no some of the work from a few years ago (laughs) Um,
0: it feels like years ago now like
2: the whole decade yeah the
1: decade of the pandemic (laughs) you (laughs) know
2: um some of the so work uh, previous to this paper on like in, um, the internal waves and those high-frequency temperature variations, that was based mm. in places like Thailand. Um, then there's and basically anywhere with um, kind of interesting topography or strong stratification, so the eastern tropical Pacific, um, but also looking at high and low-latitude reefs. So these high and low-latitude reefs are often existing in these quite dynamic environments. again um, kind of suggests that these corals might be more adapted to stress, more more able to deal with the impacts of climate change. Uh, I know there was a recent paper that came out which talks about um, climate refuge potential climate refugia in um, around the Mozambique coast and I think Mozambique oh, channel and oh, cool very I,
1: interesting we'll have I, to try and have a look yeah at that.
2: I really hope I've got the right location when I say that but it, it's fascinating because <laughs> it's basically talking about how um there are these deep channels where cool water is running through um and the corals that live nearer these deep channels um are ble- uh, kind of are suggested to bleach less because this kind of cool water is stopping the the um it's protecting room from the kind of the encroaching warming of the oceans um and these deep channels are caused by ancient glacier meltwater of Kilimanjaro wow really cool, really cool. Yeah. yeah wow yeah. I love that yeah
0: it's I feel like we're only just kind of you know um at the tip of the iceberg? Is that the saying? I'm really bad at saying But anyway, let's <laughs> skim over that. I really feel like we're just starting to kind of understand the intricacies of, you know, our ocean and that it's not as black and white as you say that, you know, we can go, oh, there's a refuge, there's a refuge, there's a refuge. Like it's very much site-specific, you know, lots of different factors um, that impact or the contribute to an area being a refuge. But my yes. question is, you know. As you've mentioned, conditions are constantly changing. If we look at like what's happened, even in the you know the last couple of centuries, just you know the onset of climate change and how things are just you know by the end of the century, if you know we continue as business as usual, things are you know going to be a lot hotter, um, and there's going to be a lot more CO2 in our atmosphere. So, how long do you think these refuges are likely to exist for? You know, are they going to be safe havens for? or are they also are they just going to be a buffer um you know are they going to just be around for a bit longer than say you know other other coral reefs that are maybe not so lucky
2: yeah that that's like a really interesting question and one that I definitely thought about a lot as I was as I was writing the paper because I I thought to myself I'm writing about this as as a refugia but you know is is it going to be a refugia for kind of what timescale are we talking about? Are we talking about decades? Are we talking about thousands of years? Um, and I think uh, it's, I think these refugia, I mean, when we talk about refugia, it, it's going to be, we're talking about almost in maybe gen timescale of generations, because yeah. I guess, you know, in the in the in the in the future climate of a thousand thousands of years we're I guess we're not so sure or maybe we are sure but (laughs) but, um I think these areas like I said are going to be areas which hopefully retain their diversity so as Mm. I meant yeah as I kind of said before the areas that are going to be really impacted by climate change there might still be some um, evidence of a coral reef there but it's going to look very different because only the um species that are uh, resilient to to yeah. ocean warming ocean acidification are going to survive whereas hopefully these refugia areas might be more likely to retain their diversity for a longer period of time mm. um, what that time scale is i don't know it also depends on you know human action on climate change and whether we <laughs> <can> <laughs> reduce our mm. climate emissions which which unfortunately so many coral papers have to come back to it's yeah. kind of like are we going to are we going to um, reduce our carbon emissions to whole global climate change yeah and actually just jumping on the back
1: of that um i had another question which i probably should have mentioned earlier but um so the way that socorro is it, it's very as you said removed from other anthropogenic stresses at the moment um it's only dived upon a certain number of months of the year um is that a characteristic that we would like to see kind of across any potential refugia across the world? For example, if we do identify a location that, you know, could be like Socorro, a potential refugia, should we then be thinking about how can we better protect this area to minimise other anthropogenic stresses?
2: Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Um because an area can have all the characteristics of a refugia but if there is um human stresses on that ecosystem then it's unlikely to be able to kind of meet that potential of refugia because um yeah because I guess the the human stresses will override that things like overfishing coastal development so Revia was in this it was nice because it kind of was a bit of a positive paper at the end because it was already in a position when the paper came out that the marine protected area had been created. So there is no um, fishing pressure um, at it's, um The MPA is about 150,000 square kilometers. Um, and there's wow. very little anthropogenic impact. Yeah, um, And so this area is kind of protected. And. Um, but it yeah and so the kind of one of the final points of discussion in the paper is if we use a similar technique that I used here in in other areas of the world then perhaps we can identify areas where it is like important to focus our resources for conservation because those are the areas that are more likely to survive in the future whereas um in kind of I guess the alternative is a less focused, um, less focused kind of management strategy management and protection plan where we are trying to save coral reefs that kind of don't have much chance of, of surviving mm. those future conditions. It is, honestly, I think it's so interesting Um
1: to look at it like this in terms of management as well, because so often around the world, we see a whole bunch of money go into, um, you know, restoring reefs that um, will most likely... (laughs) you know, bleach again the next time an El Nino rips through exactly, there and raises yeah. the temperature. And I mean, we're talking about a lot, a lot of money. And uh, yeah. Charlie and I had a chat about this the other day in the context of citizen science as well. You know, a lot of tourists are paying to come and do reef restoration. A lot of hotels will offer it to get people to come and restore their reefs as something you can do as an activity. And then you have a bunch of conservation projects who are very well-funded to yeah. go out and to take coral off of other coral colonies and put them back in the sea on a frame in an attempt to grow them again and increase habitat and increase all these structures. And, you know, it's a great idea. But for me, as a marine biologist who, you know, works with coral reefs, my thoughts have always been, why are we putting so much money and effort into this? Don't get me wrong, it's still a good thing to do. But when, you know, especially after reading your paper, when we are identifying locations where there is potential for resilience for corals is this not where we should be focusing our restoration and management efforts especially with the funding as well um mm. because being realistic we are not reducing our carbon emissions fast enough for you know a healthy thriving global coral reef
2: yeah
1: um so you know does this raise management well no sorry it does raise management questions in terms of where are we best placing coral reef funding to ensure that we do have some coral reefs remaining in the future
2: yeah yeah exactly and and like from my knowledge, I definitely, when I wrote the paper, but I think still now there's not been an example of a management plan considering refugia. Mm, um, interesting. And that's definitely because it's a relatively kind of new idea, I guess. Um, yeah. Yeah. There's like, as I said, there's lots of characteristics that feed into it. Um also when you're talking about kind of coral reef conservation in the context of um communities local communities populations often the area that is protected is not protected because it's necessarily the healthiest or most biodiverse or resilient area of coral it's protected because that is what suits that population or that community Mm. Um, which also has its you know value and reasons um so yeah it's kind of i think in a i like my dream in the future (laughs) my absolute dream is integrating um kind of community management of um of marine areas and climate refugia and yeah seeing what happens yeah that sounds like a dream
0: I think it's a really important point and um you know mad's everything that you said are we moving fast enough to actually be wasting time and money on trying to save reefs that you know aren't going to survive and actually should we be you know refocusing our efforts on these places you know amber as you've identified this area that does stand a chance it's so so fascinating um but we kind of just want to go on to one of our final questions now and kind of find out what your experience was publishing this work. So you worked with a co-author team of senior scientists, most of them men. I yeah. uh, know one of them, Max, he's amazing. Yeah. Um, so <laughs> how was your experience as a young female scientist publishing?
2: Um, I think I, yeah, I think I had, as you said, they're mostly uh, male, senior male scientists on the, um, on the paper, but they were... I had a really good experience, to be honest. They were um, they were all great, very supportive. I think, a p- female or not, as a young researcher, kind of managing that team of co-authors, uh, it takes like a lot of consideration and sometimes confidence, um, yeah. which you might not feel. Um, and it's and it's funny because you, you kind of do have to. Coming from a first experience of writing a paper it was definitely a learning um, curve in managing your co-authors. <laughs> um, yeah, so I think I think that was my kind of my experience from that. Um, I think in in terms of fieldwork on on this papers and and in general, uh, with some of my other fieldwork that I've done, being a woman. Um, it's kind of like there's definitely some extra work that you have to do maybe compared <laughs> to, compared mm-hmm. to men. So that's kind of, well, in some places it's that extra work to kind of stay safe. Um, yeah. In some ways that's ensuring that you're kind of staying true to the values that in our culture, we have been brought up with a woman without pushing the boundaries of, the the culture of the place that you're in where you know women might be seen quite differently yeah mm-hmm. um and also there's that uh, ensuring that the professional relationship that you formed is seen that that way by both parties you know you see it as a mm-hmm. professional relationship it's hoping that they don't see you just as, as you know they see you as a professional woman yeah um so i think that's my uh my kind of experience in the field and then maybe a bit closer to home um I think I've had amazing female um mentors throughout my kind of marine science career so far so that that's been that's been great but as I kind of mentioned it's having that confidence to show up as a young researcher in an environment that is mostly male yeah um and it's actually not really having those females in those positions of leadership that you you are kind of looking up to or reporting to. Yeah. Um so you yeah, I think bring,
0: that's fine. Sorry. Yeah, you, no, not at all. You bring up so many interesting points there. Yeah. So, you know, the whole gosh, I could, <laughs> we could go on about this. We could, on, yeah. Yeah, we could go on. But you bring up so many yeah. points about, you know, safety and the challenges that females face, and you know this whole issue of you know being taken seriously, and also uh, you know one thing that I've experienced is you know bikinis and swimming costumes are our work outfit. Sometimes we do go into the ocean and go diving, and we are dressed that way, but that isn't an invitation to sexualize us or to um, you know to kind of take the relationship beyond a. Yeah. Um, a professional one and that (laughs) is something that I am extremely passionate about trying to smash it's a really toxic ideology that a woman's body becomes public property as soon as you show too much skin or you're in a public realm Um, and you're right there are you know cultures and around the world where you know varying degrees of this all over and it is a real challenge and I don't think enough people realize it
2: yeah yeah Yeah, absolutely that that whole kind of covering up and and um showing your body is something that I think about so much Mm. um like you know if I'm if I has photos of me doing research or you know how I how I am dressed Mm. when I'm doing work I don't know yeah it's just something that we have to think about so much so much more than um
0: that No,
1: I completely agree as well and something that I've found very difficult personally as well is um you know not just the the, the gateway that it opens for sexual harassment, being dressed in a bikini or whatever you're using. Mm. Like Charlie, I've worked in a lot of tropical, and like you, Amber, tropical marine environments specifically. But then it's also, you know, what goes on from that? If I post a picture of me doing science on in a bikini on social media, for example, suddenly the conversation isn't about the science that I'm doing anymore. The conversation is about what I'm wearing yeah, and about yeah. whether I'm wearing enough to be a real scientist, in quotes because I've had that before um or you know or something that is again sexualizing me and so it it is really really difficult um it is a really really difficult thing that women face especially in tropical marine science specifically Mm -hmm. um but but right across the board because you know this kind of thing even happens when women wear a dress to work or some lipstick or a pair of heels and suddenly you're not a scientist anymore you're an object to be sexualized Yeah. yeah
0: absolutely absolutely but um yeah kind of moving away
1: from this now because we could (laughs) go down the rabbit hole um it's always great for us to hear about um your experience in um as a woman in science so thank you for sharing that with us um but just quickly before we finish up because we're almost at time now um going on from this uh what are you up to tell us a little bit about your phd
2: um yeah so i uh this paper kind of came out just as I was starting my PhD um, and so my PhD I, I I said it at the beginning but I'll, I'll say it again it's looking at um the impact of climate change on um marine ecosystems and coastal communities uh, particularly in the tropics and I'm really interested how um marine conservation can be used as a tool to um Address and adapt and help mitigate the impact of climate change on the livelihoods of these communities, which are often reliant on uh, marine ecosystems for both their food and their income. Um, so my PhD is working with an amazing organization um, called Blue Ventures. I think you probably yeah, know who no, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> works for Blue Ventures. Yeah, I saw recently. So anyway. <laughs> well, how about
1: that? <laughs> Small world again sorry um
2: yeah. no, it's great. It's great. <laughs> so um yeah so I'm what I'm doing is I've kind of moved more what as I started my PhD I I thought a lot about the kind of kind of marine scientist and coral particularly kind of within the coral reef sphere what science, kind of scientist I wanted to be and I realized that there's like a real gap in coral reef science of talking about like the human dimensions and the reliance that um, kind of millions of people around the world have on healthy corals for their livelihoods. Um, So I moved into the sphere of social ecological research. So this Mm -hmm. uh, is like a really interdisciplinary um, area where you often use ecological um, data, social data. I'm also using climate data and it looks at marine ecosystems and human societies as kind of complex systems where um, the yeah the human societies are kind of really reliant on ecosystems for um, crucial services and so when you're thinking about kind of the the impact of climate change on or the the various impacts of um uh, on currently occurring on marine ecosystems, you're also thinking about like the human dimensions and the, the effect that the, the it's going to have on the communities. That is
1: super interesting. And Amber, we must put you in touch mm-hmm. with another podcast guest of ours who kind of looks at the social science side of um, marine science. Who was. Uh, looking out at um out in wakatobi it was it was fascinating podcast um which for anyone listening either will have been released by this point (laughs) or will be released after this point we definitely must uh link you up with her because um she's really doing some fascinating in uh research into that and also i think as a scientist and as a marine biologist It is so incredibly important that when we look at these ecosystems, we also must consider the communities that depend on them and use them for ecosystem services and their livelihoods and their livelihood capital and and everything to do with that. So I think this sounds like a really, really interesting PhD. Yeah, yeah, definitely. I'd love
2: to be put in touch.
0: Well, it's been absolutely incredible to have you on, but we always ask all of our podcast guests just before we sign off, if you've got any last words of wit and wisdom, anything that you'd like to say to our audience, it can be anything you want. Um, And then we want to know where can people go to find you?
2: Are you on social media? Well, thanks. Like, thank you so much for having me on the podcast. And uh, I think women in ocean science and this kind of... um, this kind of platform has been like an amazing way to definitely stay motivated throughout the pandemic. Um, I think doing a PhD during COVID has been pretty isolating for a lot of Mm -hmm. people. Um, And so kind of platforms and communities like this have I think really important um, for that kind of connection and motivation. And it's amazing to hear from like such an amazing community of people doing amazing things for the ocean. Oh, I love means, that. Yeah, that
1: means so much to hear you to hear you say that. So thank you so much, and again, thank you so much perfect. for coming on. Um, absolutely love discussing this paper, and I will definitely be in touch with um, more papers to discuss off the back of this. Um, but yes, where can where can yeah. people go to find out more about you and your research, should they so wish?
2: Uh, yeah, I have um, a website amber-carter.com and i also have instagram and twitter amber underscore oceans
1: amazing thank you amber thank you so much that was so much fun you have been listening to the women in ocean science podcast don't forget to give us a follow on instagram and head over to the women in oceanscience.com page to learn more about the podcast
0: see you all next week